Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. If you're a guest, I want to welcome you uh, to our church. We've been in a series in the book of Esther, and this uh, has been like a four-week series for us. And what's interesting about this book is that God's name is like not mentioned at all. There's no Lord, there's no God, there's no Almighty One. It's not mentioned at all, but although his name's not mentioned, his fingerprints are. And we're seeing him behind the scenes in all of these situations and events, and we're watching that even though we may not see God in our life, he's always behind the scenes, orchestrating events and circumstances and people to work out his glory and our good. And so last week, what did we learn? Last week, we learned that Haman's this evil dude, wants to kill the Jews, and Esther called him out. Got him sort of trapped against the king, and she's like, hey, king, he's trying to kill me and all my people. Esther gets in, or uh, Haman gets in huge trouble. He ends up getting executed uh, for his uh, sins against the Jews. And then now there's this big moment where the Jews still haven't been rescued yet. There's this big uh, decree that went out in all the known world about there's one day of the year that the Jews are gonna be killed. So we've dealt with Haman. He's dead, no longer an issue, but still there's a decree out for the Jews' life. And so we're hoping by the end of today, we're seeing God come and do a great reversal. Now, listen, everyone loves a comeback story, right? If you're a sports fan, uh, you love a great comeback story. If you uh, have Disney Plus or Amazon, there's tons of comeback stories. We love those stories because it's a great reversal of events when things seem impossible. And listen, if you've lived in New England for a while, you know, arguably the best comeback moment in sports was Super Bowl 51. You guys remember what happened? Brian hates that. But hey, you know what happened, right? New England Patriots versus Atlanta Falcons. Some of you remember this game. Let me briefly share what happened. The greatest comeback story ever. Atlanta's winning. I'll I'll get to the Bible in a minute. Just bear with me, okay? Atlanta's winning. It's 28 to three, third quarter. It's not looking good for New England fans, okay? They're not seeming like they're gonna win. In the third quarter, Tom Brady uh, on the Patriots, uh, turns on the Jets, turns on the heat for his team, and he passes to James White, scores a touchdown, 28 to nine. Fourth quarter happens, they kick a field goal. It's now 20 to 12. Tom Brady then just goes on a mad rampage, scoring touchdown after touchdown. It's 20 to 28, the fourth quarter. They go into overtime and then New England somehow wins 28 to 34 and Brian's not happy with that score. But if you're a sports fan, it's like the greatest comeback of all of time. Third quarter looked like the game was over. If you measure the game by the score, not the potential of what could happen. And that's what we're seeing in the book of Esther. It's third quarter. It's not looking good for the Jews. But rather than measuring the score, they've got to look at God. And what can God do? So arguably, that's the greatest comeback story in history of sports. But today is one of the greatest comeback history in the Old Testament, the story of Esther, Mordecai, and the Jewish people. So let's see what's gonna happen. Will God reverse the curse of this death decree to the Jews? Let's start in chapter eight, starting in verse one. Here's the story. It says, on that day, which is the day that Haman was punished uh, for his crime against uh, the queen and the Jewish people, here's what happened. Uh, The king gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman. Remember, Haman's dead. 
And so the king gives the house over to Esther, which means everything that Haman owned, all of his estate, all of his riches that were given to him earlier in the book with his promotion, all of that now was given to Esther. We see a reversal here. And then Mordecai came before the king for Esther had told him what he was to her. So she's like, hey, king, just want to give you a heads up. This is my older cousin, Mordecai. He was my guardian growing up and he's the same dude who rescued you in that assassination plot. So she sort of introduces uh, Mordecai to the king, verse two. So in gratitude, the king took, takes off his signet ring, which was the sign of the king's authority that he had taken from Haman's finger. And now he gives it to Mordecai. And so Esther then takes Haman's house and his estate and she passes it over to Mordecai. Do you see that's the first reverse? We see the first reversal here, how Mordecai now replaces Haman as second in command over basically the entire known world. Verse three, then Esther spoke again to the king. Now guys, this is a big moment because she's about to ask the king for yet another request. And we've learned in previous weeks that Esther's putting her life on the line here. As the law on that day stated, if you make a request of the king that's not solicited, then you will be killed. So this is a big moment that she goes again to the king, verse 3b. So she falls at the king's feet and she wept and pleaded with him to stop the evil plan that Haman set into motion that evil plot that he devised against the Jews, right? That decree of genocide to kill every Jewish man and woman and child in the basically known world at that time. Verse four, when the king held out in that moment, the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. Now that's a really, really good sign. Guys, when the golden scepter is extended, that's the king's sign that he's not gonna kill Esther for her unsolicited request. And what a relief for Esther, but also for the Jewish people, which lives hang in the balance. So she begins her speech in verse five. She begins to butter up a little bit. We talked about this before. She's kind of buttering up the king. She can't just lay the request on. She's got to butter up a little bit. Verse five, she says, if it pleases the king, and if I found favor in your sight, and if this thing seems right before you, and I'm pleasing in your eyes, there's a lot of like him and hawing here, right? She sounds a little nervous in this moment. It's causing her a bit to stall. I'd be nervous too. Then she gets to the big ask. She says to the king, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, which she wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all of the providences of the king. And in this moment, Esther reminds us of Jesus for a moment in verse six. Listen to the gospel thread in verse six. For she, she says, how can I bear to see the calamity that's coming for my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Do you see how Esther points to Jesus here? Jesus did not, could not bear the destruction of humanity underneath the weight of our sin and guilt before God. And so Jesus comes to earth and takes the penalty himself. Esther's pointing us to Jesus here. Verse seven, so then the king said to both Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, he says, behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman and they've hanged him on the gallows. Why? Because Haman intended to lay his hands on the Jews and kill them. Verse eight, but you may write a new law as you please with regard to the Jews and you can write it in the name of the king and then seal it with the king's ring, his authority on that law. 
For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Now, this is interesting if you know this story because the king knows that he's unable to revoke a previous law. If you did as a king, then you could even be killed. If something is sealed with the signet ring, it cannot be replaced. Do you guys remember Ephesians real quick? Ephesians 1.13, that you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit guaranteed for the day of redemption. Do you remember that? That's, that analogy is coming from the Old Testament. If something is sealed, it cannot be revoked. For, so for Christian, this is good news for you. If you are in Christ, you are sealed. There's a promise for you of a perfect heaven and eternity you're coming to. You're sealed with a promise that whatever God says in scripture of a promise to you will be fulfilled. God is putting his signet ring on you and he seals you with his love, his provision, his protection, and ultimately all of eternity. And so the king knows this illustration of if it's uh, stamped, it's sealed, and he knows he can't reverse what Haman put into play. He can't reverse it. So what he does is he puts another law in motion. So rather than uh, revoking the death decree, the king suggests writing a protection decree for the Jews. It's very interesting, again, that God is working behind the scenes. This is an incredibly new thing that a king would do because they can't like change up the rules. So rather than revoking, he says, let's write a new one. This law was to kill you. Let's have this one be to protect you. I want you guys to notice that God is even working behind the scenes, moving in the king's heart. We talked about this last week, but it's so good. We got to talk about it this week. Guys, we're seeing Proverbs 21, verse one in action again. We're gonna put it on the slides here. It says this, the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And what's he do with his heart? He steers it, he turns it wherever he wills. And that's what God is doing. You don't see his name, do you? But you see his fingerprints. The king is moving through legislation in such a way to advocate and defend the Jewish people. That is God's hand at work. Verse nine. So the king has this idea. He summons the scribes, which will write out the law. He brings them in in the third month on the 23rd day. You know what that tells us? That we're only nine months away from that day of killing that Haman put into law. They're nine months away. It's a scary moment for all of them. So at this time, here's what happens. An edict was written according to all that Mordecai had commanded concerning the Jews, because again, Mordecai is second command. So they give it to the satraps and the governors, to the officials of the province from India all the way to Ethiopia. That's 127 provinces, a lot of land, a ton of people. All of this new protection law gets out to every province in its own script, in its own language. And the Jews get word of this. You can imagine they're rejoicing. Verse 10. So Mordecai wrote this following protection law in the name of the king, and then he sealed it with the king's signet ring. And then he sent the letters mounted on couriers, riding on swift horses that are used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. So these are like the top horses that Mordecai picked, the fastest horses, the strongest horses, to make sure this new law gets out. And then here's what the new law says, verse 11, that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather together and defend themselves, to defend their lives, to destroy and to kill and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, women and children included, and to plunder their goods. 
So do you see that law? Haman's law was, we gotta kill all the Jews in every town, every province. This law was, hey, Jews, you can, you can protect yourself. You can defend yourself. Now that's still a scary moment because you're, 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 you're handing weapons to children and untrained men and, and women to defend themselves. They still need God to intervene in this moment. And so this law is gonna go into effect, verse 12, on one day throughout all the providences of the king on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the same day the killing decree is set. Verse 13, and then a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples that the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So that's the law. You can take vengeance on your enemies, Jews, verse 14. So the couriers, they mounted up on their horses that they were using the king's service. They rode out in a hurried way and they were urged by the king's command. And the degree was issued out of Susa, the capital, the citadel. Verse 15, then Mordecai went out of the presence of the king and then check out this reversal. Fascinating what we see here about Mordecai. He leaves the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white. He leaves with a royal great crown on his head and he has robe of fine linen and purple. And in the city of Susa, shouted and rejoiced. Man, what a, what a reversal here. Mordecai moves from rags to riches. Mordecai goes from being a victim to being vindicated, from being doomed to death to protected in life. What a reversal here. Verse 16, so when word got out in all the known world about this law, here's what happens. Verse 16, the Jews had a lightness to them, a gladness, a joy and an honor about them. And in every province and in every city, wherever the kings commanded his edict reached, there was gladness there. There was joy among the Jews and there was a feast and a holiday. Then check this out. This is really interesting as a result of this law. Look what happens here. This is super key. Look, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jewish. Many of the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. The fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Did you see that? Look what begins to happen in the land. Many of the people begin to proclaim God. That's super fat. Non-Jews got the law that the Jews would be able to defend themselves and fear, fear struck their hearts. Now, but the question is why? This is super fascinating. Why did fear strike their hearts? Like weren't the Jewish people a small subset of people? Like weren't they less resourced? Weren't they already in a rebuilding phase having essentially nothing due to the fact that they just came out of an exile and had nothing? Like why would people fear the Jewish people? And here's the answer because of what they've heard about the God of the Jewish people and how he defends them and how he fought for them and vindicates them. And they've seen it now firsthand with the Jewish woman becoming the queen of Persia and her Jewish cousin now ruling as second in command of the land. So what's actually happening is that people are beginning to believe in God they see him at work. Like they actually believe he's real and they begin to declare themselves as Jews or followers of God. Do you see how that's impactful for you and I? Every pain you have, church, every pain you have has a purpose in God's plan. 
Every pain, every hardship, every setback has a purpose in God's plan. And God will often often use that pain as a platform to better point you and others to Jesus. I want you to see that point. The Jews had a death decree, guys, out for their lives. And by God working out through all behind the scenes, another decree comes out and everyone gets word about this. And then people begin to see that there is actually a God. He's actually real. It's not just fable that he does work behind the scenes. And then many peoples in the land begin to call themselves Jewish. They, not just out of fear. I'm sure there's some people that just joined on the bandwagon because they didn't want to get killed. But there's a good chance that many of them begin to trust in this God and hope for this Messiah to come. Because I want you to see that maybe your pain is the same thing. The struggle that you've been through, the struggle that you're going through is actually, it has a purpose and a plan to point you and many others to Christ. Guys, this is one of my uh, pastor acquaintances uh, in North Carolina. I sort of want to show you a picture of him real quick. His name is Daniel Ritchie. Uh, Daniel was one of my friends and uh, I was a pastor, a student pastor at a church in North Carolina. And we brought him to come and speak to our students several times and be on panels. And uh, he wrote this book called My Affliction, My Affliction for His Glory. And when Daniel was in the womb, uh, the doctors did ultrasound on his mom and found out that he was going to be born without arms and he would have some breathing difficulties with his lungs. And so the doctor suggested to his mom that it might be better to go ahead and end Daniel's life. His parents chose to continue his life. He's born. He goes through all of these medical complications, all of these hardships. Got to figure out as a child, how do you live life without arms? How do you navigate these complexities? Gets bullied in school, deals with so many personal issues, identity struggles, goes through this a ton of his life. He begins to read the scriptures and he, he learns how God can use pain and setback to actually point us to Christ in a better hope. And so Daniel begins to read these passages like, my grace is sufficient for you. Or what the enemy sets for evil, God works for good. And that God uses all things, all things to work out his glory. Daniel begins to read this and wonders, did God allow him to be born with this struggle so that he could better find Christ and he could better point people to Christ? So Daniel writes this book, My Afflictions for His Glory, and he begins to unpack his testimony, his life story. He begins to share how your value doesn't come from what you look like or what you've been through, but what God has done for us in Christ by dying in our place and raising in our place. Daniel is now speaking throughout all over the world about his testimony and his story advocating for life at all stages He's written on Gospel Coalition and Desiring God. He's written several books. And he used to wonder, God, why? If you're good and in control, why would you make me like this? Why would you allow me to suffer? And then here's what he says. He says, Christ's person and Christ's promises and Christ's plans are far better than all the arms in the world, is what he says. Daniel's hope, if you talk to him, which some of you, if you were from my previous church, you've spoken to him and his hope is that one day he will hug his wife. 
One day he will hug his children because his hope is not in the limitations of what he has on earth, but it's the hope of what he'll get in heaven. And so Daniel, with his setback, with his pain, with why, God, did you allow this to happen to the Jewish people, he used this pain in such a way that his afflictions were for God's glory. And Daniel has led tons of people to faith in Christ. Many in the land, the text says, many in the land began to proclaim faith in Christ because of seeing him behind the scenes. Friends, by no means do I want to belittle the hardship that you, your family, you individually have gone through by no stretch of the imagination. Do I want to belittle it? But I might want to say God may want to maximize the purpose of it. He may want to use the setback, the pain, the medical challenges, the family hurt, the trauma in the past. He may want to use it as a setup to better help provide a deeper healing for you, a purpose for you, and then to use it to point other people to Jesus. Daniel, with his testimony, has helped numerous of my students when I was a student pastor, helped my own life when Emily and I were first finding out that we were unable to have biological children, a, a lesser, arguably, affliction than what he had faced. But he was able to take the principles that he learned. And he was like, hey, Aaron, that, that'll be a ministry for you one day. The place that you were hurt out of will be a place that you will help out of. And you will find a deeper intimacy with what God will fill you with in that void and you will be actually in the suffering, you will find how God actually used it to strengthen you and to build you a deeper intimacy with him. So I just, I, I just wanna give you that moment to, to show you that the Jews were going through the worst moment, the darkest place in history. And God's like, I need that to happen so that my name can go further in the world. And every providence got word about God. Do you see what I'm saying? The hardship was the plan, the purpose to make God's name know further and for you and I to know God deeper. Does that make sense, guys? This will save us a lot of often hardship. It will help us with the why question because God's doing something behind the scenes for your good and his glory. I think we need to probably move forward a little bit, but wanted to make sure you guys saw that point there. Not minimizing hurt, but maximizing God's purposes for it. I think we're in chapter nine. You guys just ready to move on there? If we're not there, chapter nine, verse one, we okay? Thumbs up. Let's go there. Kyle, that's not how you do a transition, by the way. We talked about sermon prep and stuff. That's not how you do it, okay? Verse one, chapter nine. Now, here we go. Here's the big action scene. This is what the whole book is pointing towards. Now in the 12th month, uh-oh, this is the decree time, the death decree and the protection decree, the ninth month, the month of Adar, on the 13th day, of the same when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The reverse occurred. I love that. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. This is one of the most epic lines in the entire book of Esther. On that very day, when the enemies hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. Do you see the threads of the gospel here? This is the gospel thread, my friends. It's the great reverse. When Satan hoped to gain victory over Jesus by crucifixion, God gained victory for humanity by a resurrection. It's the great reverse. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, God the Father made God the Son to take our sin when he had no sin, so that in God the Son, you and I might become the righteousness of God. That's the great reverse. This is the gospel. God takes away our sinful record 
and he gives us his perfect record. When Satan hoped to gain victory over Jesus by a crucifixion, God gained victory of humanity by a resurrection. The reverse occurred. Do you see how Esther is a true narrative, but it just keeps pointing you to the gospel over and over and over again. When the enemy sets something up for evil, God's behind the scenes using it for a better purpose, and he always will. Verse two, so the Jews gathered in their cities. They were ready to fight throughout all the provinces of the kings and anyone who land hands on them. No one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. Verse five, verse five, the Jews struck all of their enemies who came to attack them with the sword, killing and destroying them. Again, this was not the Jews trying to go and do a crusade. This was the Jews protecting themselves, which they were allowed to do. They struck all their enemies and Susa, the citadel itself, people came to kill the Jews. Over 500 of them, over 500 people came to hurt these Jews and God gave them victory over them, including verse 10, the 10 sons of Haman. So not only did Haman have this hate in his heart, but his sons did. And God gave the Jews victory over 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman. Verse 11, that very day, the number of those who were killed in, uh, in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Esther, now what is your wish, Esther? And it's gonna be granted to you. Again, God's working in the king's heart to give her favor, to do God's purposes. So he says, what's your wish? It'll be granted to you. What further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. Verse 13, and Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to have this edict for them. Let them defend themselves tomorrow too, king. And let the sons of Haman, she gets a little extra here, just we'll give you a heads up. She's not the perfect character in the story. Okay, Jesus is, but she gets a little crazy here. She says, let the sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Now remember, they're already dead. She's like extra angry. She's like, put those dead bodies, hang them up high for everyone to see. Super epic in this moment. Again, she's not the perfect one here. Jesus is the perfect one. So the king commanded this all to be done. And they killed 300 men in Susa that next day. But the Jews laid no hands on their plunder. Why? Because their, their identity, their, their care was not found in riches. It was found in God. Verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's providences all over the world, not just in Susa where we get this story, they defended themselves too. And they got relief from their enemies and they killed 75,000 of those who hated them. 75,000 came against the Jews and they defended themselves and they fought off and they found victory. They laid no hands on the plunder. The Jewish people didn't. This was on the 13th day of the month of Dar and the 14th day they rested and they had a feast with gladness. Verse 20, and Mordecai recorded all of these events and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as a feast, as the days on which the Jews got the relief from the enemies and in the month they had been turned from their sorrows into gladness. Here's the reverse, from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into holiday. Do you guys remember that in 1 Corinthians 2? What can God do? He takes our weeping and turns it into rejoicing. You see a gospel thread here from sorrow to gladness, from mourning to holiday, that they should make the days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Verse 26, therefore they called these celebration days Purim after the term Pur. Remember what Pur was? It was those dice that was named 
that remember Haman um, rolled the dice and whatever day it ended up on was the decreed day. And so the Jews were like, hey, those dice that was set to my destruction, God used for our victory. So we're even gonna use that name Pur as the name of our celebration. It's another reversal moment. If you're like, what are you talking about? It's like, why, why do we call Good Friday, Good Friday? The day that was worse for Jesus, that was terrible, that the enemy had for evil, God worked for good. So they used this name Pur and they made it good. This is a day of celebration for them. Therefore, because all that was written in this letter and because of what they had faced in this matter and what have done with them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written at their time appointed every year. So they had a feast every year. These days should be remembered and kept throughout our generation and every clan and providence and, and city that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the, com the, the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. So what's Mordecai saying? He said, guys, we've got to remember this all the time. We have to write it down. We need to celebrate it. We need to remember it. Guys, this is a version of why we celebrate communion every week so that we remember and celebrate what God has done for us on the cross. This is why we have a Good Friday service and Easter service. This is why we do many different things as a church and network to continue to celebrate what God has done. And then here's how the book closes out. Chapter 10, verse three. Mordecai the Jew was now second in the rank of the king and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For listen to this, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. That's very familiar language if you're a Christian. For he sought welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Do you realize the end of the book of Esther is pointing us to the very beginning of the book of Luke? What is said of Jesus? was the first thing the angels declared glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward mankind he sought the welfare of his people spoke peace to his people and on earth God would bring peace and welfare to mankind guys this book has always been pointing to Christ where Mordecai sought the welfare of just his people Jesus sought the welfare of all Jews and Gentiles everywhere. Where Mordecai spoke peace to just his Jewish people, Jesus brings peace to all who would turn and trust in him by what he's done on the cross. Guys, the apostle Peter assures us the promise we bring up often in our church, that God causes all things to work for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose, God calls all things to work together for good. Paul says all things, which means both good things and bad things. God causes them to work together through the funnel of his love to ensure that both good things and bad things work out for our good and glory. So God uses both the good effort of Esther and Mordecai to work out his good plan. And God works the evil plot of Haman against the Jews to work out for our good. So guys, listen, you know what that means for us? That means that no matter what struggles and setbacks you faced, the bad in those things will be reversed into the good purposes for you. Some in which you will be able to see one day in the coming weeks and months and years in this lifetime. And some of those good purposes, you have to wait in glory to see what those are. 
God gives us this truth in scripture, but then he also uses stories like Esther and others to give examples of this truth in action. Esther's not the only story that talks about reverse. And I want you this evening to sort of store this in your heart for a moment because you're either going into a struggle, out of a struggle, or you're in the midst of one. And you're wondering how or why is God allowing this to happen? And I want you to, to, to take a snapshot for a moment of others in scripture that it looked terrible, it looked in chaos, but it was in control in God's hand. Do you remember Joseph in the Old Testament? Joseph in the book of Genesis? His jealous brothers sold him into slavery. But in slavery, God actually had a family buy him and they actually begin to rise in power to be the second command in all the land. And then Joseph's leadership actually saved his brothers from a famine and the entire line of the Jewish people from dying in a famine. Genesis 37 through 50 is that entire story. A great reverse with Joseph. Do you guys remember Moses in Exodus? Pharaoh refuses to comply with God's command through Moses and Aaron to let the Israelites go out of the land and worship him. But what God does, he sends a plague and so works in Pharaoh's heart to let the Israelites end up leaving with abundant silver and gold. The Egyptian army came after them, but God destroyed them. And then God's name was proclaimed in all the earth. A great reverse for the gospel to advance. Do you guys remember David? David in 1 Samuel, a young shepherd boy armed with just a sling and a few stones, had no chance in a single battle with a giant who was way experienced as a warrior. But God gives the giant into David's hand. Why? So that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, 1 Samuel 17, 46 says. So why is there a reverse? So that the gospel could advance. Do you guys remember King Hezekiah? I got a couple more. We're not gonna go through the whole entire Bible. You get me. Remember King Hezekiah, 2 Kings? The most powerful army in the known world at that time came to attack the kingdom of Judah and King Hezekiah at the capital. King Hezekiah acknowledges, looks at his army. He's like, we can't defeat them. So he prays to God that God would save them to quote, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone, he says. And then God defeats 180,000 of their soldiers in their sleep and the Assyrians retreat and God's name is spread throughout the land. God gives reverse so that the gospel can advance. What about Adam and Eve in Genesis? Adam and Eve reject God. They choose to trust in their own senses and to believe Satan's lies instead of relying on the one who created them, who loved them, who provided everything for them, leading all of mankind into sin and away from God. Yet a time is coming for the reverse where a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe and nation and tongue one day will cry out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the lamb, Revelation 7. Why did God even allow the fall? so that we could know more about God's grace and his mercy and his love and what Christ has done, which brings us to the greatest reversal of all time. Jesus, the only man ever to live a sinless life. This man was unjustly tried in court. He was sentenced to death. On the way to death, he was mocked and beaten and hung on a cross where he would die which an evil and cowardly men brought this about. Yet God, through that death penalty, takes the penalty of our sins against God. And God raises him from the dead. Why? 
so that every person, every name, oh, I thought I heard my name over there. Sorry, it was a cough. So that every name in heaven on earth will bow before him. In heaven on earth, every tribe, every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Time and time and time again. I cut five of these out to save you time. But I want you to see the entire scripture is God letting something go almost to the point of destruction, taking that destruction in such a way that brings good and salvation to many, many, many people. And so friend, if you think that your hardship is just God not showing up or coming through, no, 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 your setback is just a setup. It's just a setup for God to do something good and for his glory. So we've got one point, one point in this sermon. In Christ, God will reverse the most irreversible circumstances. In Christ, in a relationship with Christ, if you've trusted what he's done on the cross for you, in Christ, God will reverse the most irreversible circumstances. And you know how I can tell each of you that with 100% promise? Look at Revelation. That irreversibleness, if that's a word even, I don't think it is, that doesn't just happen on earth. It happens in heaven. This is where your hope comes from, friends. Revelation 21, here's the reverse of everything broken, of everything wrong, of every hurt you have. We read this often as a church because we've got to have eternity in mind to help us with the present. The writer says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth with all of its sin and brokenness and trauma and heartache and setbacks, that will pass away one day, verse two. And I saw the holy city of New Jerusalem coming out of heaven. It's from God. It's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then all of us, you and I in this room online, you'll hear a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is now with mankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And when he's with us, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, past, present, or future anymore. For why? The former things. For the former things, they're going to be reversed. They're going to be canceled. They will pass away. And then you and I will see one seated on the throne. And he has said, behold, I am making even now, even now in this moment, I am making, I am making all things new. For the majority of you in this room, it's hard for us to think that God's so intricately woven behind the scenes like he is with Esther. You're like, ah, I'm not Esther. I'm not gonna be, have a book written about me. But you are God's child if you're in Christ. And God is actively in your life behind the good, the bad, the setups, the teardowns, everything in your heart and life. And I want you to see that in Christ, God will reverse the irreversible in your life. The ultimate culmination of that is not on earth though. God will do things in an earthly life, but there will be struggle and trials and hardships. And so Christian, please listen to me. I don't want you to just think that God is just gonna make your life happy one day, that the goal if, of God's promise to you to work out all things for good is just that he'll, he'll make it not hurt anymore. He'll make something stop that's uncomfortable in your life. I want you to hold on to Revelation 21 for you, that no matter what happens to you, 
there's a disability that happens in your life, a struggle in your marriage with a child, there's a loss of a loved one, whatever it is, God plans to use it on earth in a reversal way, but he promises to heal and reverse every pain in eternity. And as a Christian, some of us, sometimes we just want it right here, right now. And God has promised he'll give it. It may be on earth or in heaven, but God will in Christ reverse every irreversible circumstance. So here's how we'll close this series together, church. I want you to consider right now your present trials, the past trauma you hold, the pressures and sorrows that your heart is often filled with. And I want you to take those and equally hold on to this truth that God is working in ways you cannot fathom to bring unfathomable reversals so that every pain becomes a means to bring himself glory in his name and good for you and his people. You've got to hold on to that. Every unfathomable hurt he will take and use in an unfathomable way for your good and his glory. So when you can't see it, when you can't trace his hand, you don't know where he's active, you don't know why you're left in darkness and despair, when you can't trace his hand, you have to trust his heart. Some of you will move from this church and you will have the hardest thing that happens to you, the most difficult things in your life, and you will be tempted to give up on God like he wasn't active, like he left you somewhere. And this is every character in the scripture has felt that. Do you even know Jesus? What did he say on the cross? God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, did did God the Father forsake God the Son? No. But God allowed something to happen that was crucifixion for your salvation. Friends, each of you will go through some point in your life, a crisis of faith. And when you can't, guys, we've said this a thousand times, you just have to receive this in your heart. When you can't see it, when you can't trace it, that's when you have to hold on to the fact that God is working behind the scenes providentially for your good. You gotta trust it. When you can't see it, you gotta trust it. So church, will you like Esther, will you like Esther continue to move forward in faith, continue to risk your life for the gospel? Will you continue to advance in hope trusting that when you're not married and you're single, you don't have kids, you didn't get that job, whatever the case may be for you, when you can't trace his hand, you've got to trust his heart. He is working out something for you and for people all around you. Hang in there to the God that's holding on to you. Church, I've loved going through this book of Esther. I hope you have as well. And then next week, we're going to jump into the book of James. It's a book about practical wisdom for everyday life. I think it'll be a really good um, book for us to walk through as a church through the summer because uh, often sometimes we make bad decisions in the summertime. And so we need a book on wisdom to help us not make bad decisions in the summertime. That's not really why the reason why we're going through it, but it follows up really well because even the book of James starts with about, hey, uh, trials and hardship and things come and how do you navigate it? And that falls right in the back of Esther. So church, if you'll take a moment and pray with me.